Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa Matos. <laughs> she always says it. Well, because he says it wrong. Ethnic. Every time. He hasn't said it right yet. That's true. I can't uh, can't fall harder for that. No, he said it right once on like the Sicario episode because he was ashamed to death. Because that Actual was ashamed. Maddox listened and he didn't pronounce his name right. All right, so we're going to talk about Fisher King. Yes. Um, which was interesting because when I first saw it, uh, my, my immediate uh, understanding of it was that it was a um, Robin Williams uh, centered vehicle. And a lot of those during that time in the early 90s and the, the 2000s were um, kind of inspiration porn type vehicles where um, characters were um, kind of, you know, very static. And the, um, the idea was that uh, it was kind of like a Manic Pixie Dream guy. Where <laughs> oh, you mean like the, the one where he's the doctor? Right. And, and Patch Adams, he was just this character where um, he was this, like, mad genius. And the whole idea was that um, he was this uh, person who was, you know, uh, crazy and was very, like, comedic. And um, he's trying to convince the, the stone-cold, you know, jaded woman who, you know, can't uh, you know, doesn't feel anything anymore. He's trying to convince her to remember why she like was convinced to be a doctor in the first place. Right. But and I, I, I see that as stuff that Robin Williams did later on mm-hmm. in his career. Most of the stuff I remember him for is more like this one was, where like mm-hmm. so, um, Dead Poet Society, right, was very much like that. Yes, he was still kind of that manic pixie character, but it was a very serious. Mm-hmm. film it wasn't you know right quite so lighthearted and quite so right. cliched as that and so that's kind of the, the the idea of this episode is to talk about how patrick or not patrick <laughs> no not patrick how robin williams embodied this idea of the mad genius and how whenever whenever he was involved in a project he seemed to embody this idea of somebody who is crazy and comedic and you know constantly creative but managed to uh energize the project whatever project he's a part of right he seems to energize the people that are involved with it and inspire them to be creative and um the specific project that we're talking about is the fisher king which is a movie that i never seen before um but really enjoyed. Um, so the Fisher King, uh, another thing that, that we were talking about was uh, involved in this idea is the idea of um, the Arthurian legend. Right. And uh, something that en- encouraged me to be involved with this was that the, um, the director of this movie is Terry Gilliam, who uh, is involved with uh, Terry... Um, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, Don Quixote movie that he's going to, um, may have already come out already um, by the time of this recording, but uh, also did Brazil um, and a couple other kind of, um, you know, uh, 
auteur films that he he really controlled the voice of the the films that he is involved in and uh terry gilliam has kind of a style of his own that we're going to talk about with fisher king um in terms of how the cinematography of the film um he concentrates on different aspects of uh different characters and whenever uh, a certain character is kind of focused on the the filming style kind of changes depending on you know who who you're focused on um but the the whole idea of the film is that uh jack lucas is this shock jock and he's kind of like a howard stern-esque character um and the beginning of the film you sort of get the idea that whoever comes on air during the uh, recording of the film he kind of uses in in terms of getting them to uh ex- he kind of exploits them when he's whenever somebody calls in yeah he kind of uses them to um exploit kind of like the idea that he wants to get across and they're at, at first it's kind of just exploiting um kind of a way to get across, like, I'm a really hip guy and I know what's going on in the world. But finally somebody calls in who is um, somebody that's, like, doesn't really have any social interaction other than calling into this show. And it's somebody that's like, oh, you you hate (laughs) the yuppies as much as I do. (laughs) Let uh, let me prove to you how much I hate the yuppies by going to this restaurant and shooting up the place. And so uh, when um, Jack Lucas, by the way, the, the host of this uh, radio broadcast, is played by Jeff Bridges. So Bre- Jeff Bridges is the, the main focus of the, the movie um, up to the point where uh, this guy who calls into the 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 radio show decides to shoot up um, this place that as far as the movie is concerned, we're not sure, you know, well, obviously entirely. some, some sort of ritzy. Yeah. Place. We assume it's a place that yuppies know, like to go to. Um, but uh, there's, there's kind of a, a scene before we get to the main conflict where um, Jeff Bridges says, um, you know, I, 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 at first I was concerned with um, people understanding the, the face behind the voice. But now I'm just thinking about how uh, people can understand the face. And it's kind of interesting because it's kind of like this Howard Stern type character where it's somebody that was maybe initially concerned with how people could... Um, understand the voice, the the, and it's it's interesting because it, it gets very philosophical, where somebody's talking about like the difference between how a personality is understood as a voice, and how somebody's understood as a face, and it gets these two ideas because uh, he has some kind of girlfriend or or some kind of you know artistic or, or, something. I don't know what she is. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bridges Very artsy person. is is dating this person 
Um, they're very would, dispassionate, very unemotional, very... I don't know what she is. Yeah, because he, he's kind of making fun of her, but at the same time, she's making fun of him. Yeah. Because she's like, you know, you're this radio personality who's trying to sound artistic, but doesn't really care about the people that they're, they're interacting with. So it's somebody who is uh, a radio personality who's surging in popularity, but is trying to act like they care about them being understood beyond their initial popularity and, you know, doesn't really have any stake in people understanding them outside of their initial, you know, popularity. Like what, what, what stake does he have in people understanding his, his real self, his soul, his soul. Right. And I don't, and he's not even revealing his real soul in the sense of like, you know, you don't get what he actually thinks of the world or what he cares about in the world. All he cares about is himself, mm-hmm. but he keeps trying to make it sound like he right. has some big moral or intelligent solution to the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. When really the solutions to the problems of the world are a lot simpler, which he learns later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but initially we get this illustrated through his opinion on sitcoms because we, we discovered that, even though he's visiting his girlfriend, who is this um, artist who is um, in this artistic world, uh, he not only has this girlfriend, but he has uh, somebody who he sees much more regularly, who is his landlord. Um, he lives above this uh, video rental That's store. Later. Um, That's later. So what happens is he's with this weird artsy chick, and he's trying to get offered this thing on, you know, he's being offered a spot on a TV show or whatever. He's getting all these deals. And then he learns that this guy that he talked to on the radio shoots up the the place. Mm -hmm. And then there's a jump forward. So now he's working in a video store living with the chick above. That's a different, you know, that's much later. I'm assuming the artist chick dumped him. (laughs) Oh. And (laughs) that he's now living somewhere (sighs) because he's not working anymore. Well, the, the scene that we get is that he doesn't appreciate sitcoms. Well, no, because he was supposed to be on that sitcom. He oh, was really? going to audition for that part. Oh. That's what he was practicing in the tub the whole night before <clears throat> the shooting. He was oh. going to be on that sitcom. And then because the shooting happened, he collapsed in on himself and quit and did all this other stuff. Okay. And so now he's not on that sitcom. And so years later, or however long later it is, mm. he's watching the show and he hates it, mostly because that's something he lost. Okay. He was gonna be. It was gonna be him. All right. So yeah, Melissa, well, I understand this a little bit differently. <laughs> um, but that that makes a lot of sense because you see, you see him say, um, "Forgive me, please forgive me," and then he sees that scene and he's with this other girl that you see that he interacts with much more regularly because, in all intents and purposes, she is his landlord because he lives in this place, um, but. Uh, you get a couple images, and I think these are something that are up to a little bit of interpretation. So, um, he has a Pinocchio. Yes, which is weird to me, but okay. Um, but I think that that's more a symbol of his penchant for lying. Yes. And you get the idea that he is somebody who <clears throat> claims to be something that he is not. All the time. 
and he, he and he associates it with this idea that Nietzsche has of the bungled and the botched, and that's a, a reference that comes together later. But uh, he sees himself as somebody who is botched, and I think he sees somebody who is bungled as being much more uh, something that is um, uh, intellectually um, sincere. That's somebody who is um, tries to do the right thing, but kind of fails versus somebody who knows what they should be doing and um, through society, through things that are outside of their control, um, fails to do something. And so he thinks he's he thinks that he's more noble because, oh, I tried to do the right thing, but I get screwed up by society. But the screenplay is trying to put the onus on him and say that, no, there's a responsibility that you're failing to um, own up to. Yeah. Um, But when he. uh, But but let me as we go through each uh section. because we are comparing this to the Arthurian myth of, or legend of the Fisher King, mm-hmm. uh, which, from which the movie. By the way, this title. was a film that Melissa had seen before. Yes, mm-hmm. I had remembered fondly, although I did not remember a good portion of it, which was very enjoyable <laughs> to see again because I haven't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Fisher King in the Arthurian legends is a wounded king. Mostly interacting with Percival, who is the one who actually eventually finds the Grail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Fisher King is like apparently the last guy in a long line of people who are supposed to be guarding the Grail. Mm-hmm. Um, he is severely wounded, usually in a way that keeps him from being able to walk, mm-hmm. and he can only be healed if someone comes to him and asks the right question. Oh. Mm-hmm. There is a different story also given in the movie. Robin Williams's character was a professor. And gives a different story as well, but the, the the idea is similar: is that this king who is ill and messed up and hurt is only healed when someone finally comes to him and says, "Why are you suffering?" Mm. Right. Mm. Um, but anyway, all of that aside, because we haven't gotten to the Fisher King character yet in uh-huh. this movie, um, I think now that we are talking this way about um, Jeff Bridges' character, that he is a very good modern version of Parsival, mm-hmm. because Parsival does not begin as an actual knight. Mm-hmm. He knows what knights are and thinks that's the coolest thing since sliced bread and wants to be one and just plows straight into trying to become one and mm. causes much mayhem and problems because of it. Mm. Um, he shows up at King Arthur's court, sees the red knight, steal something and just goes after the red knight. He never even talks to Arthur, not, none of it. He just, let's go take down the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just trying to be like, oh, I know what, what the ideal is. I know how this is supposed to work. And then just kind of bungles his way through it. Hmm. Um, which I think is how Jeff Bridges is kind of taking life. Like, I'm the smart one. I know how this is supposed to work. I know how life is. Mm-hmm. And he totally screws it up. Hmm. <clears throat> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Because when um, Jeff Bridges' character is uh, depressed by the idea that he hasn't He's kind of contemplating the idea that he's going to, like, he's thinking about his legacy, and yeah. he's thinking about how he's going to be remembered. How he's how he's going to make this big change on society, right? And so he's starting to think about 
those things and he's getting depressed by the fact that he hasn't at his, you know, um, it's kind of this kind of like quarter life crisis idea that he's seeing that. Oh, I think it's a full on midlife crisis. I think he's old enough for the tip of midlife crisis. (laughs) Well, I I think that we're, I think you're thinking about him. It's kind of interesting because there are some actors like John Goodman that you kind of think is perennially midlife, (laughs) but um, is he supposed? You think he's supposed to be played younger? I, I think he's he's somebody that who is being framed as uh, quarter life, and he's thinking, "Oh, I'm going to be. I'm starting to age into midlife, and what have I really done with my career?" And so he's starting to think, "If I'm going to be remembered as this jock jock comedian character, and I really envision myself as this Hemingway character who." really sees what's going on and I really don't understand the way that the world works, then what have I really done with my life? And so he (laughs) starts wandering New York and he's kind of contemplating his life. That's when we see him with his Pinocchio uh, because uh, the first thing he sees is um, this uh, family who's um, being kind of hassled by um, that they're trying to get into a hotel and he sees that the, the uh, staff there is giving them a hard time. And so the child gives him the Pinocchio oh, character. Yeah, yeah. And through this like kind of act of grace, he sees this Pinocchio character and he starts contemplating his life and all this stuff. And that's when we get him wandering away from this like fancy hotel. And that's when we see him go to the homeless people section and that's where Ron Williams comes. Right. Well, he goes to commit suicide actually. Isn't sure. This yeah. Going to kill himself. That's his kind of first thing. He's, is he's, he's wandering through things and he's thinking, you know, I've, I haven't really accomplished anything. So, you know, what's the use of everything? He starts to go commit suicide and, um, there are these, uh, very, um, I, I think very inspired characters that are based on like suburban kids that are like, what are you doing in our perfect idealistic society? There are these kids that are like, you know, what are you doing here? And they start We hate hassling. you guys because they're assuming he's a homeless person as well. Right. So they're like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, we should beat you up. And then all of a sudden Robin Williams comes and he is this Arthurian um, legendary character who's coming and saying, you know, speaking like a knight, he's got fake armor on. He's mm. got, it's a really awesome hat. Right. <laughs> I love that. He starts conducting, like, at first they think that he's alone. Right. And that he's, you know, choosing alone to try to find for this, for Jeffrey's character. And then he's got a whole troop of homeless people with him. And he starts singing New York in June. Yeah. With, and, with them as a as a chorus, right? So he starts conducting this thing, and you start realizing that con, uh, all these homeless people together are um, fighting or and and embodying this idea of what it means to be a gentleman. Mm-hmm. This idea that like these people together are chivalrous, and they're trying to defend the defenseless, right? Um. And uh, he starts talking about the three things that you need 
I, I don't have the written down here, but he talks about it as being um, things that like any humble person could have. And um, it, I think a lot of this screenplay are trying to challenge these ideas of what uh, somebody who is like embodied by Jeff Bridges' character as somebody who is um, raised in this suburban society as being what defines... This isn't necessarily suburban, but this whole like intellectual thing of like, I'm smart and I'm capable, mm-hmm. so obviously I'm going to be successful. And, this right. is, and, and if you're not then successful, you're not, then, then you're obviously there's something wrong with you. And then right. you're not a good person. And you're, not, you're not polite society. Right. Because as we discover watching Robin Williams' character for more than two seconds, he is insane. There is right. obviously something very mentally wrong with him. Uh-huh. But at the same time, he is being a good person and saying, we are mm-hmm. going to save this guy's life. And if that means we have to fight you guys, then we will. Right. So it's an interesting thing because it's contrasting Robert Williams' character who has gotten influence within the homeless community that he's a part of and everybody that's homeless and is a part of his society respects him and sees that he's willing to rally them towards defending the defenseless. And once um, Jeff Bridges kind of comes to his senses... He's not trying to commit suicide and everything. He uh, goes to Robert Williams, uh, uh, you know, humble place and where he lives, goes to sleep. When he wakes up, he's thinking, you know, you know, why have you kind of kidnapped me? (laughs) And like, um, he wakes up where he lives and sees all these like things that Robert Williams has collected and thinks, you know, uh, Robert Williams was like, welcome to my humble abode. And you start getting the idea that Robert Williams' character, and it's kind of... Um, it's Perry. Right. He introduces himself as Perry, and um, I think you start getting the idea that Robert Williams kind of projects himself onto any of the characters that he plays as this person who um, is trying to embody this uh, you know, not really together um, character. And when, when he's playing Patch Adams or he's playing the character in this movie, he's um, showing a character who's not, who's not entirely mentally with it, but is trying to uh checked this innocence. Yeah. Um, There's definitely innocence. There's definitely the idea that there's... uh, Chivalry is a good way to put it, especially in this one. He's he's considering himself a knight of the round table. He thinks that fairies have come and told him where the Holy Grail is. And he starts to slowly reveal this to Jeff Bridges as as this part goes on. He has a little shrine to his wife... In the, mm-hmm. You don't know it's his wife yet, but to a woman in, in his place with a book about the Holy Grail and everything in there. And this is, does he tell them, he tells them here, right? That he yeah, believes, he, says, he believes in the Holy Grail. He says, you're the one. Yeah, for one thing. <laughs> he thinks the fairies have told him that this is the one. Um, and he keeps saying, and Jeff Bridges obviously that I'm not the one, but he says, no, I was 
There are all these fat fairies. Yeah. I don't know why they're fat fairies. <laughs> they're fat okay. little, little people. Little chubby people. But told me that you're the one. And uh, Jeff Bridges keeps saying, I'm not the one. But uh, <laughs> um, that there, there was a landlord that says, I love you. Asked about infidelity. That's what I have to What? Hear. I don't know what kind of note you took. Where's that at? Oh, when he okay, that's when he gets home. But anyway, so he he gets told by Perry that the Holy Grail is in some millionaire's house. Oh, right. On, okay. And it's really like a trophy on a shelf. But he thinks right. it's the Holy Grail. So uh -huh. he says he's going to look what's his name up later, and they're going to go steal the Holy Grail from this guy. Mm. But so Jeff Bridges gets home, and the woman slash the girlfriend slash landlady that he lives with. Mm. Um, Wants to know what's happened to him. She, he didn't come home that night. Like, did do you have somebody? Are you dating somebody else? Do you come on to right. somebody else? And I tell think me. that that's a good way to show organically that there's this woman that uh, it shows that Jeff Bridges lives in this place that's above like a blockbuster. I didn't. Type. I didn't understand that it was his landlady though. I think he just lived with her because he works there. With um. Her. Well, it, it's an interesting situation because it kind of shows that there's this woman that. Um, owns this rental place and it's kind of showing that uh, she doesn't want to force her relationship on him. Like you kind of don't understand right away whether she wants to be in a relationship with him or not. Yeah. She's just kind of like this person who has this autonomy of her own and like has this way that she's earning money and doesn't really Need him no. in the way that but she a traditional, loves, you can tell that she cares about him, right? And you can tell that she, because of her concern of him, and saying like you, you know, you, you were gone last night, and I don't know where you were. You can get that she's um, concerned about him, even though she doesn't rely on him for income. No, like it's this idea of like this woman who, you know, is separated from him financially, but still cares about him. And, um, yeah, that's what I had down here because it's, she doesn't really come across as a landlord landlord because it's not like the character He's not like, paying in Spider-Man three, where like, there's this character who's like, I depend on you for income. Where were you? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, but and I don't think he's paying her rent. Like, I think she is out, out of her good graces, letting him stay there. Okay. Because she knows that's his only job and he can't probably get rid mm -hmm. anywhere, but he's, but they're dating or we're dating. So she's right. like, okay. You because she comes across as like, rather than ask him about, um, infidelity and bring it up as like this kind of like concern in their relationship. What she does is she, she does this illustration about God and the devil and how she introduces it is, um, God is like a man. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. Um, no, because she said they go into a whole big thing about people claim that people are created in the image of God. And I don't remember why she goes, she starts with this. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she goes into this, you know, how people claim that humans were created in the image of God. And she's like, I don't believe that. I think that they were created in the image of the devil. And, mm -hmm. but women were created in the image of God. Uh -huh. And they get together because. Or that's why they fall in love with men because mm. they're a whole lot more interesting <laughs> than God. Yeah. So that kind of introduces this idea of 
in this uh, in this story, it's really women that are embodying the image of grace, which is a very also Arthurian slash chivalrous kind of idea. Right. Women are your motivation. Women are this thing that you hold up as what gives you your grace, what gives you your strength to go on when you're dealing with whatever battle you're fighting. Like they are this idealized, beautiful thing right. that is compelling you to do what you're doing. Right. Because we, as we, as we didn't mention before, Perry, the reason why he's so crazy. Oh yeah. It's because not just because. Oh, that's he learns this on the way out of the place because the guy that owns the building that Perry lives in stops him on the way out and tells him that he went crazy ever since his wife was shot in that crazy shooting that happened mm-hmm. at that Ritz restaurant. Because because Jeff uh, Bridges' character was so careless in how he gave people advice, he was telling this person, "Oh, yuppies aren't." You know, we talked worth about that anything. Part, but yeah, it's the shooting that he instigated at the beginning. But what we didn't, what we didn't oh, talk about was that because Jeff Bridges' character was so uh, nonchalant, he inspired this guy that takes so much advice from him. We did say that at the beginning. What we didn't say was that he shot up someplace. Yeah, we did. I did. Oh, I don't know okay. what you were saying, but I said it. <laughs> Very good. All right. So uh, after the break, we'll talk about. How uh, Perry inspires Jeff Bridges' character to start dealing with this problem. Yes. And we'll see you. Bye-bye. Um, so we last left off. Um, the landlord was uh, trying oh. to get Jeff Bridges to oh. be concerned about, you know, why are you dealing with this person, Perry, who... Um, is trying to get you to be guilty about this thing. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's really Jeffrey's problem. And uh, she really, it really shows that she has concern for him. Yeah. Outside of. Well, because she knows he's only doing it because he feels guilty still. And like everything right. he's been doing at this point is guilt. Right. And I, I think that's really a strong point of this screenplay is that it's showing that. Um, guilt is not the the place to come to morality in that just because you're guilty about something doesn't mean that that's going to be something that is powerful enough to compel you to continue to fight for something um, because... Right, because his, his motivation is to try and not feel guilty anymore. Right. Not to try and actually fix anything. Right. And so guilt can be a good motivation in the sense that it can stop you from doing the wrong thing, which it did. He got mm-hmm. off the radio and he's rethinking how he presents himself and all that. But it's not compelling him to do anything good. Right. So what happens is that once he finds out that Perry's wife was killed because of his wrongdoing, he decides, oh, so I'm going to give him some money and that'll help me from stop, right. to stop feeling bad. But then he sees that Perry... Uh, uses his money in a charitable way, and he's like, "No, like I gave you the money." What happens is he gives him some money, and then Perry gives his money to another homeless person. Yeah, and he's like, "No, like that's not I why gave I gave you. you the money. I gave the money for you." Um, but Perry starts giving his money to somebody else, and Jack starts suddenly feeling something for somebody else yeah. in a way that isn't selfish. 
and Perry is actually within, and I think that's that's something to talk about within Robert Williams' career is that he is, um, he isn't just comedic in a way that somebody like Abbott Costello is in just a way to get laughs. Mm-hmm. The way that he is comedic, it actually shows something about humankind. Yes. And within this character, you see that he's not just like, he starts embodying this idea of like, oh, like, because <laughs> what happens is Jack gives him money and then Perry's like, oh, you actually feel something. Yeah, it's like, oh, you like me. That's so nice, Jack. <laughs> and so what happens is that because uh, Jeff Bridges' character, Jack, starts feeling something, he starts like saying like, oh, I see that you're starting to feel something. I'm not going to let that go right. until you start acting like you should be acting. Right. And so what happens is... This is when Perry introduces the love of his life. Oh, right. Who so, he has never met. <laughs> but he follows around all the time. Well, we get we get two things before that. So, oh, sorry. You see that Jack starts caring about him. And that's when he starts noticing things about Perry's life. The first thing is that he notices that he sees the Red Knight. Yes. The Red Knight is something that, that Perry sees only in, the, in his imagination. It's something that is a figure that represents something from his past. Yes. And we don't know entirely what that stands for, but he starts seeing this Red Knight. and Particularly when anything about his past is brought up. So when Jack right. talks to him about what, because he finds out he used, you know, he was this professor of literature at a university he, whenever he brings any of his past up, he kind of goes into a fit and sees this red knight thing, which is really creepy, actually, in the mm-hmm. movie, and very well done, uh, that comes after him. Yeah, Jerry Gilliam decides to depict this red knight as somebody not just who is clothed in red, but is, like, festooned in red. Yeah. like as somebody who overdone. has, like, a lot of red feathers and stuff. And, and breathes fire. Yeah. It, it's like it's a very creepy. nightmarish picture that's that's portrayed in him, and then um, uh, Perry starts hearing somebody who's calling for help, oh, yeah, and yeah. it's just a, it's just a character. <laughs> I don't know who this character who this actor is who I've portrays these stuff. characters. I've seen him before in things, but it's somebody who I think is representing uh, again this kind of idea of like. You start getting this idea of like the homeless, but this is somebody who is portrayed as as somebody who's very effeminate, uh, who you assume is somebody who's like trans transgender, and is kind of He's like definitely transvestite anyway. Right, uh, it's somebody who's dressed in in female clothes who is who is a woman, um, who's a man, who who's yeah, who's a man, um, but is calling out for help. And you imagine who has been uh, abused in some way and is calling out for help. Um, and who Perry is particularly trying to get Jack to pay attention to. Um, and they, uh, you know, both call for Jack's attention to, uh, you know, say, like, this is somebody who's not paid attention to in society. And... Uh, let's go save this person. Uh, and it's calling Jack out of this kind of um, 
comfort zone that he that he has himself in. He's somebody who is this radio shock jock who has this very comfortable life and uh, is being called out of this thing to actually pay attention to what it's like to be a homeless person. Right. And uh, as you know, anybody or even even the idea that like he's going through a psychological issue himself. Because he's trying to deal with the guilt of, of having caused the death of, like, I forget how many people it was, 12 people got shot in that thing or something. Mm-hmm. And But now he's being faced with people who have much worse traumas than him. For example, right. the guy whose wife got shot in the same tragedy. Right. It's like, yes, it was rough for you, but this guy lost his wife. Mm-hmm. Or this other guy, I forget the story he, the, the transvestite character mm-hmm. tells, but he also right. lost something very important to it. Like, you know, it was right. serious personal trauma. Mm-hmm. And you know he's being faced with this whole idea of like you think you have it bad, mm-hmm. but there yeah, are worse so, things to have gone through than you. So it's interesting because they take, um, they take the the story from both of their kind of comfort zones to this like emergency room, and uh, they take the the transvestite character to this place where they're waiting for him to be treated for the bruises that he has and everything. And um, he, Perry sees the the girl of his dreams, the girl that he's been kind of uh, occupied with. Um, We see that Perry has this person who has like a very kind of comfy office job who he's been watching and uh, is somebody that has been, you know, on their lunch break, and coming out to find like romance novels, yeah. and and she keeps trying to eat uh, dumplings and dropping them. With, <laughs> she keeps trying to eat them with chopsticks and drops them on herself. Like she's a rather bumbling sort of character, mm-hmm. right? And and we see that like he, the way that the screenwriter frames her as this person that doesn't understand the fact that she has this beauty that only somebody like Perry is able to recognize. And so um, he understands her beauty. And um, after uh, he sees her in the disc, and it's kind of this interesting thing where she goes into this uh, train station. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he sees, uh, he sees the way that Perry sees it is as if it's in, because uh, the way she's she's moving in between everybody, like she's a very mousy kind of person, so she doesn't mm. push her way through a crowd. She kind of right. does this dance to get through such a crowded place, and mm-hmm. in his mind, it becomes this full-on dancing where everybody's like ballroom dancing through the place, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's just kind of gracefully making her way through it. It was right. a really neat way of, of showing what he right. thinks of her. It shows his perception of her, yeah. as this like graceful creature. And uh, Perry obviously is fixated on her, and um, Jack wants to. So when uh, the next scene is this, um, <laughs> uh, Perry's trying to get him like, you know, get naked and, and start oh, watching the class. That, yeah, the crazy scene in the park. Um, he's trying to get him to see nature and life as this, like this. Uh, you know, field of abandon where you can start seeing the grace of life as this like whole, you know, experience where they experience nature and then life and love and everything. Um, 
So that's when he tells him the version of the Fisher King story um, from this. Well, you start. Oh, yeah. So he starts saying, like, the fool is the one that recognizes the grail for how valuable it is. Well, he doesn't even know it's the grail. What the fool does is know that the king needs. So the king um, is ill and Mm -hmm. no one's able to cure him. And he's trying to get the grail and doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. And is just depressed and everything because he doesn't get this amazing thing. But then he is sitting alone and blind and helpless or whatever he is in this castle. And mm-hmm. this fool comes to him, not even knowing he's the king. And mm-hmm. he's like, are you okay? Well, how, why are you suffering? How can I help you? And he says, I'm just so very thirsty. And he goes and gets a cup that brings him something to drink and gives it to the king. And he's cured. And he realizes what the fool went and got was the grail. Right. And the fool had no idea what any of that was. Uh-huh. But the king was just, just because he knew. I, it's like, I didn't know it was the grail. I just knew you needed help. Right. Which does somewhat tie back into the legend that I've heard. Because the idea is it, you just need someone who's willing to come and ask you how you're hurting. How right. are you suffering? What can I do to stop your suffering? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they know what the grail is or what it isn't. Or if they have any magic cure or what. The fact that somebody is willing to come and help you mm-hmm. with your suffering. Right. Is the important part. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a really officially done screenplay because at this time the Red Knight reappears. Yes. And Perry starts seeing this thing. But at this point is where uh, Joe as a character starts seeing, or Jack as a character, starts seeing what he really needs. And um, it, ser- it starts going into what um, you start seeing as the, um, the, the story circle where a character starts going from what they want, if you're going to go based on what Jack wants at the beginning of the story, he wants to be recognized and have his legacy realized for what he started out uh, as seeking. Um, But what he realizes he needs is to give um, Perry what he needs. And what Perry needs is to realize that the Red Knight can be defeated. And so uh, he realizes that that Perry wants um, this girl. This girl. <laughs> and he's like, oh, so because I have like the radio show. I think it was Elaine. I don't remember her name. Oh, her name is Lydia. Lydia. So Lydia uh, is somebody who he perceives as needing to be kind of like tricked into this situation because she's not going to just start dating a homeless person. No. So he's like, okay, so because I have this radio show, I can use this to my advantage. And so <laughs> uh, Jack calls her and says, you want a contest? <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> like, now have a free membership to our video store. Yeah. <laughs> and she immediately assumes he's tricking her. Yeah. Well, so at first she's like, she's immediately suspicious. Yeah. So he starts getting the transvestite to go to the... <laughs> yes. And I, I think this is what I give Terry, Terry Gilliam credit for because uh, me and Melissa have kind of had a conversation about humor that I I, I feel like I needed as a writer to improve as, you know, a screenwriter where you start realizing that the, the way to write a, an efficient script is that um, you start realizing that the best way to write irony is to show 
characters that are supposedly supposed to be straight-laced and like this is a, a yeah they're in a publishing house office so yeah. these are all very official it's like a cubicle farm everybody's <laughs> got t- t- suits and ties on right and, and this you think that like the way to do it is oh like i'm gonna write this completely you know out of out of very absurd crazy scene right but the way to do it correctly is rather than have everybody act absurdly, right. you have the absurd people act absurdly, and, and you have the straight-laced look people at them, like, what act straight-laced. So, rather than everybody act like they're in a Three Stooges cartoon, you have, um, you have, what's your name? <laughs> Lydia. Lydia. You have Lydia act like, dude, like, I... I don't know if I can trust you. She's talking to to Jack on the phone and she doesn't believe any of it. But then they get the the transvestite character yep. with a to, bunch of balloons. And and I, I think it's it's and, uh, it's made more dress. comedic by the fact that your the transvestite character was told before that they tried to act like Barbara Streisand. Right. And they were, you know, mocked for it and you know, all this stuff. So they you know, he gets to go in and do this whole Barbara Streisand routine and everybody in the office is like completely flabbergasted. <laughs> and like, you know, it's not just like the people on their floor. No, like, like people from the a, second floor and up are like, it's like, guys, you got to come see this. Everybody in the office starts watching this character do this it's whole a, Barbara Streisand routine. Broadway level song and dance number. And it's all focused on and like basically Jack convinces Lydia through all of this song and dance that she really won a contest, <laughs> even though it's something that Jack completely made up so that Perry can have this date that he really wants. Um, so uh, <laughs> finally Lily, Lily comes to Lydia comes to the store and, and they pretend that Perry works at the store. Right. <laughs> and he bumbles through trying to talk to her. Mm-hmm. But granted, she's bumbling too. Like, she walks through the store knocking everything off the shelves mm-hmm. accidentally. And all this right. stuff. Because there's this... And I, I think this is really... You get through all of these scenes that each of these characters are really different characters. I think there are a lot of screenwriters that um, struggle through trying to make characters represent people that aren't themselves. <laughs> and and I, I struggle with it too, where like you want the characters to come across as having your voice and, and portraying the, um, you know, you, like, I, I, you know, it's the way that like, kind of like Joss Whedon writes, where you go through a, like the Avengers script that he wrote and the different Buffy characters that he wrote. And, a lot of the characters come across as having the same diction and having the same comedic timing and, and different stuff. But through this script, like Lydia is kind of like this very realistic character who's like, who are all you weirdos? Yeah, it's like, that like, on? like what, why, like, why are you acting so weird? And she, at, at first she comes across as like, you know, Oh, I like Ethel Merman stuff. Right. And the landlord character who owns the, Blockbuster video, whatever. It's like we don't have any of that yeah. stuff. But um, anyway, so 
she thinks the whole thing is still a gym. Like she assumes everything in life is a trick. Right. Because of how and that and that kinds of things she's been that doing. character moment is like a, a lot of her different character moments are. I've been cheated it's like, by oh, different people. Like I've been people. through this before. I know how you are. I don't believe any of it. Right. So uh, what happens is that um, through this interaction between Jack and the landlord and uh, Perry, she's like, all of you are trying to kind of jit me, but then she finds out, oh, the landlord does nails. Yeah, because she's got this really cool, one, yeah. big nail She book. sees that Jack's love interest is, like has these really cool nails. She's like, oh, I'll get nails done by you. When can I come in? Yeah, and Jack right. is like, oh, maybe you can come sure. in today. And, Jack, and the landlord's like, come yeah. on, like, can you stop my night with this lady? But but it ends up really cute. It's a really neat moment between the two of them because she finally right. gets her to loosen up, and they talk about men, and they do they just have a girl time, right. which I don't think either of them have had in a long time, mm-hmm. is what it seems like. So they have a good old time, right. and then Jack is busy stapling Perry into a suit, <laughs> <laughs> like he's right. he's hemming it. With staples. Yeah, so we, we actually kind of get some some it's interesting... actually good time on both sides. Yeah, so we get this idea that, like, these women are, like, having this nice heart-to-heart, and then at the same time, um, the the uh, moment that we get between her and the landlord and Perry is where Perry thinks that he's being a gentleman by saying that, you know, like, you're a good woman that shouldn't go to waste. He starts taking oh, off his yeah, pants yeah. as if, like, that's going to... Because he was trying to get Jack to pay attention to her. Right. And so it's an Which interesting funny, dynamic. It's, it's Robin Williams, and he can he can manipulate people. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling he kind of was like that as a human being, that he could get... He was a fool. He was the classic sense of a fool. Yeah. That's what I, fools do. I think fools, this is a very by good... By their humor, point out your problems. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of critics have started to use the term Falstaffian. Uh-huh. As if it's a term that, like, any person that's fat and, oh. and like, generally foolish can get away with. Nope. But the idea that Shakespeare was trying to get across is that there are people that are in this lower station that have an idea of a perspective on the world that not many people get, have that advantage. Yeah. Where they understand that, like... People that are of, of upper class think, oh, th- there's this person who owns a, you know, blockbuster video that doesn't deserve our time as a, you know, a person that's like a middle manager. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who is a homeless person and hasn't met a woman that isn't, you know, doesn't have all of her teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, like he's this person who's been without somebody who is... And to be fair, she owns a business, mm-hmm. even though she doesn't live in like the most ritzy place. Mm-hmm. She owns a business. She does not need Jack. Right. She's fairly cute, I think, a pretty mm-hmm. woman. Right. He has a point where he's saying, you're this amazing person, and right. he doesn't even see this. Why are you wasting your time with him? Right. And, and I think what this is showing is that while there are a lot of more... Um, there are a lot of more uh, sophisticated ways of showing affection. He's, they're trying to show through this screenplay in, in terms of Terry Gilliam's directing and everything that there's a way that a guy sees 
this woman has a job, and even though you're this guy that has all of this, what the world, uh, you know, defines as success, and or did anyway. You think smoke, that but he used to. sleeping every week with a different woman is part of that definition, and you don't see that this woman is wise and kind. Right. Because he, he asks him earlier, Perry asked Jack earlier if he has a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, I kind of do. And he's like, does she, and he lists all this stuff of like, does she inspire you? Is she the, the light of your life? Like, is she this thing for you? And he's like, oh, no, not like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And even to this, to Perry, to this woman he's never met before, she is this, you know, idealized, defining, I am going to change my life for her. Mm. As opposed to Jack, who just kind of thinks of her as like, well, this is just where I am now because I'm in a slump. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go be something better later. Um, mm. And he's trying to, you know, point out that, no, this is not how you treat a person, let alone a person that is at the moment on a much higher station than you. <laughs> right. So um, how this is kind of defined through Perry's character is that um, through Perry and the landlord, because the landlord kind of takes the girl who is not very well socialized, who has not been treated very well by men. She says, like, you're kind of a bitch at this point. Yeah. And, like, you're not really opening yourself to... No, but she gives it... She, that's not why she means by that. So the yeah, girl is you, you very... Put it a little bit more eloquently. The girl is very shy and very mousy and very, like, I can't... I can't do this, right? Mm. She doesn't want to go through this date. They're trying mm. to... She realizes at some point that they're setting her up on this date. Mm. And... She's telling her, you know, you can be a bitch. And she says it in a way like, you can do this if you want to. You could, you could mess people up. <laughs> and she's not telling her that like just in the sense of, you know, in the bad way. She's trying to tell her, you, you can affect people. Mm-hmm. You can interrupt people right. if you want to. You and know? I think that that's, that's very, I think people should admire Karen Gillian for being able to frame it in that way. Where the actress was able to put it, put it across as a compliment in a way that was like <laughs> because you, she had like, been you giving, got this. They clashed immediately when she showed up at the video store. Mm-hmm. They cl- because they are both very strong-willed women, and even mm-hmm. though the mousy chick didn't realize it, mm-hmm. that's how she was being. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so the woman kind of pointed out to her, "It's like you know, when you wanted to, you could do this. Mm-hmm. You could stick to your guns and and." be what you want to be mm-hmm. and not let somebody tell you you can't because you're supposed to be the nice girl. Mm-hmm. Right. But anyway, so the woman's kind of like, Oh wait, really? I can and be what? So what happens is Jack takes Perry after he finally gets him in a suit that looks nice. He takes Perry with this homeless guy, puts him in a suit, cleans him up and, and they all have Chinese together. <laughs> and well, what at first they were very reluctant, but they convinced them both to, Except this night where they can both be equals. And um, <laughs> they have this really nice night together where Perry sings a song that is about Lydia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it actually gets Jack and this, this landlord character to remember what they like about each other. And it's a very like nice, sweet moment. It's very well lit in this like very well-decorated Chinese restaurant where it's like just very romantic night for the both of them. Um, and once they're done, Jack and the, the landlord are both laughing 
like hysterically. Yeah, because it was because I'm pretty sure they let Robin Williams ad lib half of what happens at that table because <laughs> they start like playing hockey with the broccoli and they're like spinning the the lazy Susan around like crazy like they're doing all kinds of kooky stuff right. at the table. Um, but it actually forces Jack and and William character to remember what they right why they what was romantic what started the their relationship in the, in the first place and. Um, it actually forces them all, all four of them, to remember what, what it to face what terrified them about yeah. their their intimacy with with each other, um, but also force them to um, actually have this really nice night together, um, and after that night together, the the mousy you know secretary lady who uh, Lydia who. Uh, hadn't had this night with somebody for a while. She starts saying, like, you know, you don't really have to come upstairs. and Or because I know how this goes. You're going to come upstairs, and then you're going to leave in the morning and be all distant, and you're never going to call me, and I'm going to feel like crap afterward and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then Robin Williams gives the most romantic speech in the universe. <laughs> because she what, she what she does is she invites him up for coffee. Right. And like, she does coffee. that because she's been forced by society to offer that to a man who is nice to her but she says he well uh perry who is completely because he's homeless is outside of this side norm he says i don't want coffee you know i'm i've fallen in love with you over these past you know however long he's He's been been obsessed with her and he starts revealing that i've seen that you know when you're feeling you know bad you go past the book rack, but when you feel nice, you start, you order the romance novel and uh, you get lost in it and you go and you get uh, uh, dumplings. Yeah, at the local Chinese place. And he starts saying all these things that show it, it, it's, it's symbolic of a man who appreciates a woman for the things that are beyond just. The things that he gets out of her. Right. Um, he's not into just using this woman for what he can get out of her. Right. And he tells her, I don't want just one night. I want, you know, like a thousand nights. I want yeah. to, to be around you forever. Um, but then that leads to a very sad part. Yeah. Next. So uh, we, we uh, as in um, a, a very tight screenplay where it's about... Um, you know, um, the struggles that they're really going through. Um, Robin Williams. Oh, yes. Well, after this break, we'll get into the sad part of the story. Uh, so Robin Williams, this is, this is so sad because, uh, it, it kind of the meta narrative to the story is that, um, Robin Williams really embodied this idea within the the nineties and two thousands as uh, an actor who um, was able to bring us out of our lives and uh, be able to think about uh, the transcendent part of what comedy could represent to us. Uh, everything from Aladdin to Patch Adams and and the, the different characters that he spoke to. But you tend to forget that he can also make you cry, mm-hmm. like nobody's business. Um, so 
after he has this moment with Lydia's character, he sees uh, the Red Knight again. And what the Red Knight symbolizes, what we've um, in this story not really been privy to, is that um, while we've had references to it before, we really see the full scene where uh, Perry's character, his wife, has been shot through. Well, they were, because he was also there. Uh, they were having dinner together mm-hmm. when she was shot. Yeah. And uh, Jack, the person that Jack advised that, you know, yuppies were evil and he should, he should be, get rid of them all. Yeah. <laughs> he really listened to him. And that person went to uh, a restaurant and started shooting up the place. And Perry's wife was shot during this altercation. And so, um, what, what really, what really tore my heart to pieces in this part was that it seems to me that Robin Williams, um, really believes this, like in his heart of hearts, he was convinced that taking his own life was the right choice to make. And it's, it's really sad when, uh, an artist that you respect of this caliber who really respected and, you know, you know, got people, whenever he was involved in a project, really got them to believe in um, the light and, and um, got them to believe that, you know, uh, art can really change people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He, in the end, chose to believe that taking his own life was the right answer. And so, um, and I don't even know necessarily in this movie that that was supposed to represent him taking his own life, but it is definitely the, cause the first time, like right after his wife dies in the story, mm-hmm. they, they say that he goes, he went catatonic. So he didn't right. necessarily kill himself, but he definitely yeah, gave the, up it, on within, within the, the story. It, it certainly reveals, um, certainly like that, um, Perry was was somebody that was legitimately had mental problems, right. and and that what that's what kind of elevates the story within the narrative of of uh, King Fisher King, in that, however much um, as a society we might elevate people like this that are homeless that have their own. You know, but, it, but it comes down to he was suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And he was suffering in a way that no one had helped him with, and he didn't know mm-hmm. how to deal with. That's right. why he shut off, right? Um, but instead of shutting off, Robin Williams, as a lot of comedians actually are like that, where mm-hmm. they have some sort of inner suffering that they don't know how else to deal with, and so they make fun of the world. Mm-hmm. And at least the the beautiful thing about Robin Williams is, yes, he made fun of the world. But he did it in a way to try and make the world better. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't just let me mock all the horrible things that are out there. It's mm-hmm. let me show you by showing you your foibles, by showing you, you know, the silliness of what you're doing, mm-hmm. how you can become better. Right. And it is really sad that that he personally couldn't deal with whatever it was that was. Right. And, and I think that that's the thing that um, we kind of want to bring to light through this episode is that um, though – uh, through different stories, um, there are characters that, through this mad genius archetype, are usually portrayed as villains. Um, this is a, a, a 
this is an example of somebody who, through their career, was uh, vulnerable enough to show the um, the side of humanity that wasn't able to deal with their um, the injustices and the weaknesses of society and was able to embody that in a way that I think helped strengthen society and was somebody who, um, you know, constantly showed humility through his characters. And, and like you were saying, there are a lot of comedians who choose to uh, show like the, the faults of society but are, are very um, threatening and, um, you know, proud. Like they're they're and, just like scoffing at it. Right. There's a difference between, okay, let's all laugh at how silly we are, right? Mm. And that's what he did. He made us all together laugh at our own faults mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm going to stand up here and mock you mm-hmm. or society for their faults. Right. You know, it's not a we can all laugh at this together thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the the line that got to me most too is like, can't I just have this one thing? Mm-hmm. Because at this point he knows he's got so much guilt about missing her and about can't I have something good in my like he mm-hmm. felt bad for being happy after that because right. his wife is dead and he doesn't feel like he has the right to be happy. Mm-hmm. He's like, but can't I just have this one? Right. Just give me this and, one. And thing. I think that that's that's something that uh, we might get further in 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 other episodes. It's a, it's a very deep thing that's very hard to discuss within one episode but um, there are a lot of people that choose to believe that they're not worthy of love mm-hmm. and within this this character we see somebody that doesn't feel like they're worthy of being able to move on right. as a character and he's like can I just have this and um, he uh sees after this moment with Lydia where he's able to confess his love um, for her and, 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 and having it be something that she ultimately uh, accepts, he sees his wife and sees the pain that she went through and feels, and, and then... And then the Red Knight shows up again. Yeah, immediately he sees a vision of the Red Knight and thinks, I'm not worthy of this love. I'm not worthy worthy to move on, and so uh, the the red knight attacks him again, and then the uh, people that we referred to earlier, the teenagers that were um, trying to beat up Jeff Bridges, mm-hmm. they show up again, and, and they, they kind of merge them visibly in the movie. They merge them with the image of the red knight, which I thought was a really neat effect. Oh, <laughs> dropped her notes, um, but uh, they they kind of represent his own inability to move on because he says um he says to himself like something like oh i see it or, yeah or he says something he actually like, thanks them at the end yeah he says thank you because he's ultimately accepts this uh, idea that he doesn't deserve this love because he let his his wife die um so uh so he Jack, goes oh yeah go ahead yeah, so he says, um, uh, uh, eventually, because because Lou has, you know, brought this relationship between Perry and um, Lydia, 
he kind of thinks like, oh, I'm good. Like I did this nice yeah. thing. And he's trying to move on. So so from everybody. His, yeah. So, so his way of moving on is what he's kind of always defined it as is in his career. So he calls Lou, which is his agent, and Lou says, you know, as long as you you know, like keep up to what you're contracted to, you can move on. And so he meets with his landlord, uh, Jack meets, meets with his landlord, and says, you know, uh, Lou says I can move on, so I think we should kind of take this slow. And I think Lou's landlord kind of... Jack's um, landlord. Yeah, Jack's landlord. Yeah, sorry. Jack's landlord takes this in the appropriate way, where she says, um, like, I've been the epitome of the modern woman. <laughs> I've allowed you to be in a relationship with me and not demanded anything, anything from you. And yet anything you have was not giving her nothing. Yeah. You, you have not. And in return, <laughs> you have not demanded anything of me. And yet, um, like what she basically says it because he says like, I think we should take this slow and they're going to spend time apart. Because she right. was talking about moving into something bigger together now that they would both be working and all the stuff. Uh-huh. But yeah. she's like, can you at least have the courage to hurt me now? Yeah. If you're going to... If you're just going to break up with me, break up with me now. Don't break <laughs> this out and pretend that you want whatever you think you want. And, and I think this is, this is a really good subtle line where she says, I'm not a modern woman. Yeah. And it's her way of saying, I'm not... Whatever you imagine a woman to be. It's not me. That's not me. Nope. I'm somebody who, despite all of the uh, messages to the contrary, I'm in love with you. And I want to be with you. And so why would you assume that, you know, even though, you know, you fought, had all this fun, you would assume that I'm... You know, this person who who sees themselves as trash, somebody that's disposable. Yeah, that I was just here for you to take advantage of my house, and then you can just ditch me. And she's like, "Yeah, I'm not having that. Get out." Mm-hmm. And this is very well, I think. And 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 this is something that I, I've kind of. Uh, this is probably going to come up in future episodes where, um, the main conflict is very well roped into the main character's emotional conflict because uh, because the uh, random teenagers were dumb and beat up Perry, he winds up cantonic and Jack uh, in the middle of this, you know, frustrated debate with his, with his, his this girl that he's been um, messing around with um, is called to to visit Perry. Yeah. Because Perry um, had his wallet. He gave him his wallet so he could pay for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets to visit Perry. And all of this time, Perry has seen Jack as this hero. As somebody who's supposed to embody their authority legend. And is supposed to get the grail. And, um, you know, be the hero that he, he wants him to be. Uh, he starts... Through reading the uh, Grail book that he has, and because Jack also sees that Lydia visits him and loves him and um, 
despite his homeless state, sees the precious, you know, um, gentlemanliness that he's kind of embodied. He realizes, listen, like, I've been this jerk and taken for granted the situation that I have, both with the voice that I've been able to uh, have and the, the woman that's had all this faith in me. I might as well, <laughs> for this kind of person that has, has had all this faith in me, I might as well be able to go get the grail. <laughs> and so he has this... And he puts on Jack's... He puts on Perry's crazy clothes, <laughs> including the hat right. and the whatever cape thing he's got. I don't know. And shoots, shoots. I think that's, that's... I don't even know where he got that. Like, where do you, where do you get those, <laughs> you know, those claw things that you chuck up over a castle wall? Like, he... Climbs up in the, the the rich guy's house looks like a castle, mm-hmm. so he's like climbing up the castle wall. I think that's another thing to to grant this film from Terry Gilliam's perspective is that you have all these things that are very serious um, things, and I think back in the in the nineties we were able to joke about it a little bit more. You get through this experience that these characters have been through this. Um, experience that allows you to venerate the and and honor the humanity of these characters despite the you know political differences you might have from them and despite being different from them you're able to understand these people as human beings yeah and you don't need to you know think of these characters as part of this um you know this like these people can be different and still be able to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though Jack is this person with this really big, you know, responsibility and this job that he has, um, he's able to think of Perry as this person who has had all this faith in him. And uh, despite all of his flaws, um, been able to think of him as somebody who's worthy of redemption. And so at this, at this ninth, at this 11th hour, (laughs) um, he's able to think, Oh, like, because this person is now at this moment of weakness, it's my opportunity to actually do something. This thing. And I love that he, because he's like arguing with the unconscious Perry. Right. I'm not (laughs) going to do this. I'm not stealing a trophy off some guy's wall for you. And then he's like, but if I do do it, I'm not doing it because I believe that it's the grail. I'm doing this for you. Right. Right. He's doing it for the suffering person. Right. It has nothing to do with him, you know, thinking it's a magical cup or believing that there are fat little fairy, whatever nonsense Perry was <laughs> into it for. It's like, I'm yeah. doing this because you deserve to be well and right. whole. And I'm going to go do that. And, for you. and you even get a better moment where, the person who owns the grail right. is like trying to commit suicide. Trying to kill himself. And he manages to have broken into the guy's house just as he tried to kill himself and sets the alarm off in the house on purpose so that the emergency people can come and rescue him. Mm-hmm. So it's like saving people all around. <laughs> right. And so what happens is he gets the grail, he gives it to Perry. Perry wakes up. And in this moment where Jeff Bridges is like probably half comatose by all this right. like, stress that he's on through right. is like leaning on Perry's feet and Perry wakes up and says in in his 
like kind of half comatose state is saying, can I miss her now? Yeah. And it's this moment where he's able to express the idea that. That she's gone. He's, he's dealing with the fact that his wife is gone and he's asking Jeff Bridges character, can I mourn the fact that my wife is gone and deal with the fact that I have all this suffering that I still need to deal with. Um, and <laughs> you got this nice happy ending once they both wake up. <laughs> and um, Perry's character meets Lydia again and oh, yeah. has it's this so really cute. sweet moment where he says, are you my girl? And they... Um, He's still got all the other people in the in the psych wards singing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're all singing um, uh, New York in June. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a really sweet... The whole thing is a really sweet movie about how you... Like... And, and I think that this is a really good example because because we've talked about uh, Roma that was a very politically charged movie that was very um, that was done in a very clinical way. I think this is a good opportunity to show that a lot of these stories there's a way to portray them in a way that is dramatic um, and shows the suffering that is inherent in these people's lives. Within the story, you get somebody who's homeless, who is uh, a transvestite. Um, There's people that are suffering from loneliness. Like, I think Lydia is very, like, has been hurt before also. Right. And, and, and you can get from the world and you it. can get that they're trying to contrast uh, Perry's character, who is homeless, who has had all this concentrated time alone and uh Lydia who is even though surrounded by people still, still very alone. just as lonely and within that you get this commentary on mental health where you can still be surrounded by people right and and feel alone in the world and so you get that that commentary on mental health that this person is suffering as somebody who has been maybe mistreated by men. Right. Uh, and even Jack, I mean, he's mm -hmm. depressed. Mm -hmm. His problem is he is depressed and doesn't know what to do about it. So he's just being a sad sack in his house mm -hmm. or her house, not even his own place. Cause he can't take care of himself. Or uh -huh. anything. Right. Um, and then the store owner too was, although I think she's probably the, the least. Uh, yeah. I think she's the, one with the least. Issues. She's the most socialized. <laughs> yeah. And yet, so within this last moment, uh, you get the, the moment between Perry and, and Lydia because they've been uh, equated so much. You, you kind of expect that to be this like crowd-pleasing moment where they get back together. And because they're so um, compared to each other, you kind of expect that to be a really sweet moment. But you're really expecting Jack to earn this moment where he – makes amends to the landlord right, because right. he's been such a jerk throughout the whole movie. And he... He kind of tries. Str struggles to say, I love you. Yeah, but he does say Because he it. hasn't been able to say it, but he says it. And the landlord says, you son of a bitch. And she smacks him, yeah. but then hugs him. Right. 
because as you're saying, this character who has convinced himself that it's the intelligent way to um, isolate himself and think this is the way to be noble is to be to extricate myself from society um, finally learns that the way to be noble is to be connected to other people. Right. And to be vulnerable. Right. And um, it's a really beautiful story throughout these different things. And, and I think that's... Uh, and then, of course, you know, we end the movie on both of them lying naked in the park looking yeah. at the clouds. <laughs> because why not? Right. And, and both Perry and Jack lying naked. And right. Just to clarify, which, which people so are So we get this really... We get this really uh, transgressive and, like, uncanny uh, picture of these two guys that are, like, trying... That are being the most vulnerable that they can possibly be. Right. Right. And they're trying to say, like, we uh, see eye to eye. Like, we both have people that love us, and we're seeing the world as it as it's meant to be. Right. Like, they're both looking at the clouds, and they're able to see the sense in the nonsense right. together. Um, so, you know, all credits to Melissa for picking he, up. He doubted my choice of absurd film, but I told him <laughs> I had seen ones that were absurd and that were good yes. because it's Robin Williams. And if you need absurd stuff, then you, you look for Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's the, the point I want to make with this episode is that um, Robin Williams was somebody that was able to, it, and like when you see animators from Aladdin talking about how they changed, like, Animation is one of the most arduous processes within the, the Hollywood industry. The fact that they changed the direction that they were going. Yeah, because of his performance. <laughs> because, like, oh, like, he's really funny. Apparently for that first scene, you know, where he's the the market dude, the uh-huh. salesman, they literally just sat him in front of a table with a bunch of stuff on it uh-huh. and let him do his thing. Right. So, like, I think he actually broke the thing. One of the things uh-huh. as he talks about, but that's just such a cute, like I can totally picture him doing that. Just mm-hmm. having, Oh cool. I get to play with all this stuff. And right. he just, you know, went with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he was a, Don't the give type him improv of artist props. It's a bad idea. <laughs> right. He was, he was the type of artist that took the artistic license he was given and rolled with it and was able to, um, embody the characters that he was given. Like you, you're telling me, I'm going to be this homeless person. That's going to. And you uh, think you're an Arthurian knight? It's like, okay, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh I yeah, that's perfect. No problem. I've been waiting to do that my whole life. Can I make my um, own hat? Right. Somebody made that hat. I don't know where in the world they got that hat. But that <laughs> yeah, he had one of those flappy uh, medieval hats. Um, but yeah, kudos to Robin Williams for the career that he had, um, and we all miss you. Um, but uh, for for the work that we have from him, he was able to energize the actors and the directors and the writers that he was with and uh, influenced the whole production to the point where everybody that I've seen doing an interview about uh, a production that included him always talks about how, yeah, we had a plan and then Robert <laughs> and then Williams showed up. Him. <laughs> and they were, like, and they the were plan. just like, oh, I, I guess we're going to do whatever he says we're going to do. But not in the sense of like, oh, he's a tyrant. It's just mm-hmm. oh, in the sense of you get infected by this idea that he has and you're like, no, that's how it should be. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so the Fisher King is a really good example. 
and I think a good entryway into um, the the type of absurd films that uh, Terry Gilliam made, which this is the first Terry Gilliam project that I've Yeah, I, I don't know been, that I have seen others. Um, uh, uh, but I've, I've heard that Brazil was a really good uh, dystopian project that he was a part of. And then I also heard that Adam Driver was a part of a uh, Don Quixote film. Which I, I, I can kind of see how... I love me some Don Quixote. Yeah, I can kind of see that influence of uh, a filmmaker who is inspired by these absurdist uh, projects that are um, like, you know, it, it seems like a lot, a big project to interpret these classic works. But I feel like with this one, with the Arthurian legend, he, excuse me, was able to not get bogged down by the different like details of like, yeah, like oh, I need a Penelope and right. I need a Guinevere. One to one things. We don't need an Arthur. We don't need to make it exactly like, because those stories, even, there's so many different versions. There's no way to say, okay, this is going to be the modern version of blah, blah, right. blah. He kind of took the, the grain of sand. Right. This is what it means. How right. do we put what it means into this film mm-hmm. and still have like symbols from the original story? Because mm-hmm. they had the Red Knight, they right. had the Grail, they had, you know, certain symbols that meant something. But without making it like, okay, we're going to make this like a direct allegory or anything, mm-hmm. you don't have to tie yourself down that much to right. show the essence of what that story meant. So, uh, in closing, tell us what modern adaptation you think did a really good job of embodying that legend without maybe getting into those all those grainy details. Uh, because I think there, there are those things like maybe like the modern adaptation of um, the Clash of the Titans or things <laughs> like that, that get lost in the things like, oh, we need this character and we need... We need this line. We need the cameo we from need, that mechanical we owl. We need Liam Neeson to do the release the Kraken's line. Yeah. Like there are those adaptations that get too lost in the mire of. We need those dramatic moments right. of it, where uh, I think like the two examples that I always use are um, Christopher Nolan doing the the Dark Knight franchise and um, Macquarie and on all the people that are are responsible for the new adaptation of the 007 series Mm -hmm. that took the essential elements of the character and realized we can hold to those truths. Right. Without without, having to do all the details. Yeah. Without needing to make a, uh, homage to, you know, this issue of this comic or this movie specifically. Um, But anyway, so next up in our myths made modern series, mm -hmm. Oh, we have a title. Yay. (laughs) Uh, we're going to be doing song of Achilles. Um, so if you have not been reading it yet, well, I can't even recommend what we're going to say. You have to listen to the podcast <laughs> yeah. to find out what we think of uh, this. But but certainly keep your eyes out for the 5th of November, because what we're trying to do is, uh, between our different social media, uh, let you know at the 5th of whatever month. Yeah. What we're going to be reading. What for the we're going to be reading. And then by the end of the month, we'll let you know via the what podcast, we what we thought of, of the book. Uh, and then you can let us know for your your, your comments on that podcast. Write us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com. I will try uh, and convince my brother to put that email in the show notes uh, so that you can see it. And then um, via Unboxing Story at Twitter and Facebook, you can also let us know. Yep. Um, and also, you know, make suggestions because 
we do have a, a plan for um, the next uh, book that we're going to go through. It's the city of something. <laughs> the city of night. I don't remember, but you're right. It, we will let you it's know. very interesting with these YA um, novels that are so popular. I like YA novels. Anyway, <laughs> we are going to sign off before it gets too late. Have a lovely night. And we'll see you next time. Bye.